quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What's going on? <laughs> Big dog. Oh my God. What are you doing? I need dog sounds. <laughs> not you, not you, not humans being dogs. For this episode, my producers gave me a pretty unusual assignment. They asked me to interview some of the furrier members of my family. What are you guys barking at? What are you barking at? Do you even know what you're barking at? Those are my three dogs. Q, Nuck, and Bruno. Bruno, how old are you? You are not even a year old. Wait, your birthday's coming up. They say that dogs are a man's best friend. And that's certainly been my experience. But having dogs was something that came to me later in life, as I started to learn about the benefits of animals, mentally and physically, when I understood how our bodies changed physiologically from simply having a pet. Nowadays, after a long day of work, I often will go outside and throw the ball around with Q, Nuck, and Bruno and just decompress. For those of us who have pets, we know that they are more than just friends. They really are members of our family. But as a neurosurgeon, I couldn't help but wonder what's really going on in my brain when I cuddle up with Bruno, Q, or Nuck. So on today's episode, we're going to explore how pets affect our bodies and our brains. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. Gather up your furry, feathery, or scaly friends. It's time to start chasing life. Hi, Sanjay. This is Angela Carpenter. I'm 36 years old. I'm from Exton, Pennsylvania. Having pets greatly reduces my and my husband's stress and anxiety greatly increases our happiness, our sense of routine. My black cat, Ogden, has been a big de-stressor for me working from home these last few years. It's great to just look over and see something so darn cute when I'm stressed out. I live alone, but I do have four dogs and a cat. And to be honest with you, if they're the reason why I get up in the morning. In the four and a half months since I've had my own dog, I have felt happier, I have gotten outside more. I've never felt more valued and loved and appreciated. I have a dog. I've had him for eight years, and he just makes me so happy. My husband, too. We love him like a child. What is compelling us now to look at another species and say, this is our baby, this is our child? That's Monique Udell. She's an associate professor and the director of the Human-Animal Interaction Laboratory at Oregon State University. Her research looks at our relationships with animals. The way that we live with pets today is very different than the way we lived with them even a generation ago or multiple generations ago. She says that the relationship we have with our pets is far more important than people think. 
And it seems to be tapping into the same mechanisms that we form attachments to others in our our lives, including other humans. Um, And when we categorize these bonds, we're seeing this, you know, caretaker attachment type relationship forming. The bonds we form with our pets can be as strong as our bonds with human family members. In fact, your brain goes through the same chemical changes when you form a bond with your kids and with your cat. There is a lot of research on in terms of what happens to us when we make contact with our pets, touch them, look into their eyes, especially um, the research that's been done with dogs has focused on increased levels of oxytocin production. And we're still trying to understand exactly what that does to us in terms of our emotional state, in terms of our health-related responses. But oxytocin is often thought of as um, something that helps facilitate bonding. Oxytocin is a hormone that can act as a neurotransmitter. But more importantly, it helps us bond and trust other people. It's the same hormone that's thought to give parents the warm fuzzies when they see their baby. And Monique says it's not just humans that experience these neurochemical changes. One of the things that's really interesting is that we see the same response in dogs. So as our oxytocin is increasing from looking at them, their oxytocin is often increasing when they're looking at us. Being around our pets also releases two other important neurotransmitters in our brains, serotonin and dopamine. Serotonin influences our mood, our memory, and our learning, among other things. Dopamine plays a big role in our brain's reward system and is responsible for our feelings of pleasure. And there are lots of mental health benefits. We might see that people feel greater senses of social belonging or well-being. We can see that in some cases it can help reduce risk of certain mental health illnesses like depression. It certainly helps with things like loneliness. We can see these mental health benefits, especially in one of the populations actually where we see a, a huge potential support benefit in terms of emotional support is in young children who have other difficulties in their lives, benefit a lot from having a pet and can form really strong attachments with the pet. Something as simple as petting a dog or a cat, for example, can create a calming effect that can reduce our stress, lower our blood pressure. That's good for the heart. That's thanks to those feel-good chemicals again. Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. Pets may also help us experience faster recovery times after an illness or injury. Plus, there's research that suggests if you have a dog, you're going to go outside and you're going to walk more. I know it's true for me. I really love going outside on walks with my dogs. I know that it helps my blood pump as well as theirs. It keeps both of us happy. I also love seeing my neighbors and their dogs. And our dogs play together and I talk to the neighbors. It's both a physical and social interaction, something that probably otherwise wouldn't happen. Pets have a way of opening up your world in ways maybe you hadn't even imagined. And you know, for some animals, helping humans is a full-time job. The service animal is an animal that serves a specific health-related function. And that could be something like a seizure alert dog or an animal that is going to you know, help guide a person, whether you know because they are blind or because they need physical support Something like that. They need to serve a function. And then there's also therapy animals who provide emotional support to their owners or patients in a hospital setting. But here's the thing. Our pets 
don't have to be certified in order for us to reap those same mental health benefits. And just because you have an animal that you might live with day to day as a pet, in some cases, they can also provide a therapeutic resource to many people. They can be integrated in a partner in physical well-being plans or in emotional well-being plans. They can serve a support role in a variety of situations, especially in the home, because they're living with the person all the time. Our pets can do so much for us, but I want you to know that it's a two-way street. We touch their lives in important ways as well, ways that you should really fully understand. So one of the interesting things that we're starting to find in situations where we see strong bonds between pets and people is that the pets have many opportunities to benefit in ways that actually mirror a lot of the benefits that we're seeing in the humans. I mean, when we bring animals into our homes, we have so much impact on their physical and mental health. I mean, we control so many parts of their lives, you know, from food to access to medical care, to access even to outdoors or other members of their own species. Um, We control how they spend their days. And I think that, you know, if we focus on those things, we do the best we can by our animals, um, then it's going to show in their quality of life and in their health. Um, And ultimately, we know, even from the more selfish perspective, that we too are going to benefit more from having that strong, positive bond with our pet. But it's not all fun and games. If you're thinking about adopting a pet, do keep in mind all the responsibilities that come along with that. Sometimes animals can get into a lot of trouble or they can have severe health problems or behavioral problems that cause a lot of stress on us too as their owners. And then on top of that is just when we adopt animals, be knowledgeable about what that means, what what their needs are, what the expenses are associated with their care, being sure that we're in a place to provide the care and attention and support that that animal needs throughout their lives to ensure that that we're really giving them that good home. Many of us welcomed pets into our homes during the pandemic. In a world of uncertainty, pets gave us companionship. They added structure to our lives with feedings and daily walks and belly rubs. So I think being in isolation really drives home the value of these relationships that we share with these other species. And it's allowed us to, in many cases, spend more time with these animals. And in other cases, it's driven many people to go out and adopt that dog or the cat or the animal that they had been thinking about bringing into their home for a while because they're working from home or they're spending more time at home. But now that more people are going back to work in the office, we do need to reconsider how that's going to affect our pets. Will there be higher rates of things like separation anxiety when people go back to work? Um, And how will animals cope when these things shift back maybe in a different direction again post-pandemic? And it could go either way. So it could be that those strong foundations that were built with all of that focused time together early on could lead to even stronger bonds. And maybe in the long run, pets will fare even better um, having had that close-bonded experience early in their adoption. And I think the fact that we're asking these questions and we're talking about it makes it more likely that we'll be ready to address that if it does occur. After the break, tips on improving those relationships with our pets. Plus, is your cat brainwashing you? But first, a quick favor. One of our next episodes is about social anxiety. If this is something you've ever struggled with or overcome, we'd love to hear your story. 
Record a voice memo? Email it to asksanjay at cnn.com or give us a call at 470-396-0832 and leave a message. We might even include your story on the podcast. Welcome back to Chasing Life. You know, while I was researching this episode, I came across something that truly wowed me. This is going to sound far out, but stick with me on this one. To start off, there's someone I want you to meet. When I was 17, I had swollen lymph nodes. And I felt otherwise fine, but it caused me to get all of these different tests to make sure that I wasn't otherwise ill. And we discovered that I was toxoplasma positive. That's Sebastian Lurido. He's a molecular parasitologist at MIT. But about 23 years ago, he was infected by a cat-borne parasite, one that is very common. Anywhere between a quarter and a third of the world's population is infected with this parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. And most of them are asymptomatic. Most of them have perfectly healthy lives and will never know that they are infected. Toxoplasma gondii, it's, first of all, just again, the name Toxo. You know, it, it just conjures up something you don't want to have. <laughs> you know, I, it, it sounds like it's toxic. Let me clarify the name Toxoplasma. It, it was named that because toxo means bow in Greek and plasma is shape. And if you look at these organisms under the microscope, they're sort of bow shaped. They look like tiny little bananas, much, much smaller than a human cell. I love sort of understanding the origins of names and in science and especially with their Greek and, and Latin derivations, they're, they're always fun to sort of search. But again, in my sort of blockheaded sense, I just thought toxic plasma, you know, does not sound good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I made it sound much better, but um, I guess imagining little bananas. <laughs> but those cute little bananas can have serious health repercussions. In some individuals, you can have ocular disease where the parasites sort of migrate to the retina and can start killing the cells of the retina. And that causes inflammation. Those symptoms are rare, but there are real risks to cat owners who are immune compromised or pregnant. The parasite can pose serious dangers for a fetus. In about one third to half of the cases where it's contracted for the first time during pregnancy, that infection can be transmitted to the developing fetus. And there it can cause very severe complications, anywhere from blindness to inflammation of the brain and developmental issues with those organs. Before talking to Sebastian, I'd only heard about this parasite in medical school. I've got to tell you, it's pretty wild, particularly its life cycle. Its life cycle is sort of split between infecting felines and infecting almost any other warm-blooded animal. And the reason that we split it is because within cats, it has the ability to undertake its sexual cycle. And the product of that sexual cycle are these very long-lived stages that are highly, highly infectious to warm-blooded animals such as ourselves. 
in the wild, those stages would actually infect birds and rodents, and it would be through eating those birds and rodents that Toxoplasma would find its way back to the cat. Toxoplasma gondii starts developing in a cat's intestines. The parasite then finds its way out through the cat's feces and then into another warm-blooded animal, like a rat, a bird, even a human. But then it has to get back into the gut of a cat to reproduce. We are actually dead-end hosts for Toxoplasma. So even though it infects so many of us, it usually will not make its way back into the environment, except when we're eaten by tigers. <laughs> wow, These parasites don't like that, right? They, they don't want a dead-end host, obviously. So like this idea of humans and cats interacting the way that we do, is it sort of anti, it's anti-evolutionary for the parasite, right? We force the cats to live in our house. So they wouldn't normally live there because they'd rather be out there uh, living in an environment where there's not dead-end hosts. I would say that a lot of cat owners would disagree with you, Sanjay, and would claim that their cats love living with them. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But here's the really crazy part. When the parasite is trying to get back into the cat it could actually change the host animal's behavior in a way, sort of brainwashing the mouse. And there's many investigators who have detected a loss of a fear response in the rodents that contract toxoplasma. In many ways, this has a nice ring within the overall natural history of these parasites. Because if those rodents are no longer afraid of cats, then they can be more easily eaten by cats and the parasite can somehow fulfill its cycle. Okay, so there's this idea that the rodents may become less fearful as a result of the infection, allowing them to be more easily uh, caught and eaten by cats, thus fulfilling the destiny of the parasite here. This is beautiful. This is like poetry, right? I mean, it's really remarkable. And even my understanding is from looking at some of this literature, even among rodents, an infected male may be suddenly more attractive to females. Is that true? I mean, are these infected rodents, do they appear to be more attractive to other rodents? There is some experimental evidence to support that. But I would say that these effects are difficult to measure. And we often need to be cautious about the, the conclusions that they draw. None of this is easy to study, as you might imagine. But the really interesting thing here is that it may not only be rodents who are susceptible to this mental manipulation. It has raised the speculation that perhaps our own behavior is being affected by infections with toxoplasma. I think the jury's still out to what extent that is the case. But it's not to say that Subtle changes aren't taking place on a daily basis. So this idea, again, of, of and, I, and I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of liberty in how I'm describing this, but this idea of the parasite in some ways manipulating the behavior of the rodent hosts, almost in a way brainwashing them, if you will, or making it easier for them to be then eaten by cats. Is there any evidence that this parasite has an impact on human behavior like it does with these rodents? There are a lot of studies that have tried to 
draw correlations between different human behaviors. And there has even been an association with um, some neurological disorders like schizophrenia. In general, there is little consensus around that concept. Toxoplasma infection manifests a little bit differently in the brains of mice than it does in the brains of humans. Whereas in mice, you would find a lot of these chronic stages distributed throughout the brain. In human brains, in a healthy individual, it's actually quite difficult to find them at all, even if they have been exposed to toxoplasma. So there's that distinction that gives us a hint that perhaps the behavior of the parasite in mice and its ability to manipulate their behavior will be different than its ability to manipulate our own. Is this being studied now, the impact of toxoplasma, not just on the human body, but human behavior? Is that a real area of study? Yes, it is. I would say that you're going to have a hard time getting a scientist to say that something is absolutely impossible or unlikely. And so some of the hesitancy that you're hearing from me comes from maybe my own scientific training. But I would say that we've done enough studies as a community to know that the effects, if they exist, are small. But the effects in rodents are not small and they are measurable. And so we can speculate that perhaps the ability of toxoplasma to make it to the brain of these intermediate hosts does benefit its spread within the environment by making those intermediate hosts, those rodents, more likely to be eaten by cats. It does make me wonder, do we love cats because they're cuddly or because the parasite they carry might be brainwashing us? Okay, now to be clear, I don't want to scare any cat owners who might be listening right now. And Sebastian says you don't need to get rid of your cat. The highest risk of contracting toxoplasma from an infected cat is in the disposal of the kitty litter. If we dispose of that kitty litter routinely, if we wash our hands after handling it, that will really cut down on the probability of transmission. But overall, I would say that the benefits that we derive from those small animals are worth the small risk. And that ultimately we're more likely to contract infections from other human beings than we are <laughs> from our beloved pets. Do you have cats? I mean, so with all that you know, do you keep a pet cat? I don't. I'm a dog person, but it's not because of my field of study. It's just because of my own proclivities. If you're still concerned about infection, a blood test can determine if you or your cat have toxoplasmosis. The benefits of having a pet outweigh the risks. We've talked about how our pets have made our lives better. But how can we return the favor? We asked animal researcher Monique Udell for some tips on how to keep our pets happy and healthy. Tip one, it's going to sound simple, but spend time with your pets. You know, one of the things that we can do to ensure that pet ownership is good for human health is to really make sure that we are focusing on the quality of relationship that we're sharing with our pets, that we're taking the time to engage in the training, the socialization, the positive interactions with our pet that build and support a strong two-way relationship. Tip two, 
enrich your pet's routine because they can get bored too. So this could be something as simple as just taking some time each day to engage in activities with your animal, if, especially if they're highly social. Maybe they need some you know, cuddle time with you or they need play time. Um, taking dogs out for walks so that they can sniff and they can contact the grass and they can dig and they can exhibit some of their species typical behaviors in a safe way that's compatible with, with their circumstances of living in homes. Tip three, show your pets plenty of physical affection and this will help you too by releasing some of those feel-good brain chemicals like dopamine. What animals need most is uh, reassurance, support, comfort, um, and also consistency. So being just a, a source of, of security um, and compassion for your pet, as well as uh, setting rules and having training, those sorts of things can really make a lot of difference. Tip four, and I know this one may sound silly, but talk to your pets and listen to them. Watch them, listen to them, um, learn to read their body language and understand what they need from moment to moment in their lives. And being responsive to their needs is a huge part of developing secure bonded relationships with animals. Showing a recognition of when they're hungry or thirsty or tired or wanting attention really opens up the opportunities for communication with your pet. Listen to your pets. That one really kind of stuck with me. Animals communicate in all these different ways, in their daily behaviors, in their patterns, in their reactions to what we do. And if we just pause, take the time, and listen to our pets, we can better understand what's going on with them. And once we connect better with our pets, we'll be able to reap some of those same benefits we've talked about today. Increased physical health, better mental well-being. I'm going to be curious to hear how you use Monique's tips in your own life. So drop me a line, let me know, record a voice memo, send it to asksanjay at cnn.com, or leave us a message. Call 470-396-0832. We might include your story on the next podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday with an episode about burnout, featuring Rahaf Harfouche and a community of monks in New Mexico who may hold the secret to happiness. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Jordan Gaspore, Emily Liu, Xavier Lopez, Isuke Samuel, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park. Our intern is Eduardo Ocampo. Our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, and Courtney Coop from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 